I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Jingle bells, jingle at bells, last, jingle all At the last, way. the Christmas spirit has descended yeah, on you. You're exactly. a bit of a humbug last week. I know. Well, I, I, in order to take refuge from what's happening in politics, I sort of <laughs> Christmas seems a good distraction. Look, everything seems to be falling apart at the moment. But yeah. amidst it all, yeah. you had a hit tweet. Uh, that makes up for everything, doesn't it, really? <laughs> Yeah, it was my suggestion um, to Theresa May that if she didn't survive the vote of no confidence, which she did, uh, she would have a bright future in podcasting. Uh, the, 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 the odd thing about it is that, I mean, okay, I thought there was a sort of element of self-deprecation in it, but I think people saw it as more of a burn, I think, as the right, young right, people right. say, than I intended it to be. I m't mean, think it's that bad, having a future in podcasting. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I'm quite enjoying it. Yeah, I'm quite enjoying it too. I mean, okay, you know, it's not like being Prime Minister, but I mean, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. So have you heard from her? I haven't, no. Well, she won, I suppose. If, if yeah, but we, she's not going to be fighting the next election, so she must be thinking about her future in So maybe she might be available. Yes. Strong and stable. Reasons she, to be strong she, and stable. She, she, she could call, or do you think we could offer her sort of house room? Well, incorporate her into our yeah, network. make her part of our empire. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, yeah, you, you, you ask. You should yeah. ask her. Do you think so? Mm. I'm not, probably not at the moment. <laughs> Why don't you she, ask him Prime Minister's question time? Yeah. I think the thing is, people are sort of underestimating her. So they say, oh, you know, she's got no personality. But, you know, some people said that about me. And, and look at you now. Ta-da, I had a sliver of a personality. So, <laughs> you know, who knows? She might be a bundle of laughs when she gets her own pod. So this week, then? Yes, we're talking about things that don't normally get talked about in public policy. Kindness, love, compassion, and how they can be part of public policy and public services. I know that sounds like hard to sort of relate to. But I think this, the fundamental idea which unites our guests is that the, the, the quality of relationships with people and the extent to which they are given power over their own lives and are treated humanely really determines whether public services work or don't work. And we're going to be talking about different ways that that might happen. And is this kind of the opposite of computer says no culture? Very good. I think it took me 124 words <laughs> and you said it in about three. And we'll be joined by comedian Adam Riches, who's going to be bringing along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful? Did you not notice when you walked in? Your mother is here. Well, my mother is here, but that isn't what my reason to be cheerful was going to be. Cheerful though yeah. I am to have my mum visiting. Christmas tree. Yes. You don't like my Christmas tree. I didn't tree. notice it. I don't think I saw it, did I? It's huge. It's an eight-footer. Really? Yeah. There was a little bit of uh, marital conflict between Sarah and I because um, I, I wanted to spend the big bucks and she wanted to get a, uh, you know, sort of a misshapen Is it Sarah one. and me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. sorry. No, no. Thank you. Thank you. For I always get yeah, it no, wrong. No, I, I always do. get I it wrong. Yeah. No, you don't get to do it again. No, I don't <laughs> get to do it again. Yeah, there was a little bit of marital. Keep, keep that bit in, Emma. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit this bit before it gets to her. There was a, there was a little marital conflict because sarah wanted to get a misshapen tree whereas i wanted to spend the extra money and get the perfect one and and she won so uh, it's misshapen but larger it's misshapen but larger and now i'm feeling sorry because i've got i think i think you're a bit sort of love island psychology here i mean i think it's sort of you know it's not it's not all about outward appearance no this is this is what i'm beating myself up over this a little bit so i'm trying to learn oh i see so you're not resentful about the tree no you're sort of both resentful about the tree and guilty about your body fascism yeah yeah i'm trying to learn to love this slightly odd looking tree right Uh, so that's that's mine well i will give it some love later on nice that you didn't notice on the way yeah sorry i did i didn't know my reason to be cheerful is a it's a sort of a quiz starts with a quiz so who said this this is after the paris riots instead of being hypnotized by the burning images we have to pose the question where did it come from and the answer is it came from the rising tensions between the metropolitan elite and rural poor between the politics represented by macron and the 99 percent who are fed up with inequality not only in france all over the world the true question is whether the disobedience can be constructive. What comes the day after? Can the progressives in France and all over the world use this energy so instead of violence, we have images of constructing equal and egalitarian societies? Was it David Hasselhoff? No, but you're not that far away. Was it Pamela Anderson? It was. You yes! Knew. You knew. Yeah, I did know, yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so I suppose, unfortunately, she came out for Lexit after, you know, after I felt cheerful about her. But which you know, one is Lexit? That's sort of like the left wing version of Brexit, <laughs> right, which I'm right. not really a great believer mm. in. It's a longer conversation. I, I think I missed Pamela Anderson the first time round. Uh, but I, I, maybe it was in the 90s. It was, uh, it yeah, was, okay, very much. It was very yeah, 90s. Exactly. Sort of, you know, as you know, Gordon Brown ate my 90s. So would you like a Baywatch box set for Christmas? How much does it talk about sort of Marxist theories of the state? <laughs> Because obviously I missed it the first time around. Is that what it was about? Yeah, very, very loosely. How, how much was Frederick Engels involved in Baywatch? <laughs> a fair amount. I'll buy you the box set. Fine. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Julia Unwin, who is a fellow at the Carnegie UK Trust and has written uh, a whole report uh, on the issue of kindness in public policy. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Just to start off, what led you to the issue of thinking about kindness in public policy and kindness in our society when it's not necessarily a subject that lots of people write or talk about? Well, it's a really uncomfortable subject, isn't it? It's a really difficult one to talk about. What led me to it was thinking recognising how much is going on in our communities where people are now supporting each other. We're talking about social prescribing. We're talking about dementia friends and dementia friendly cities and child friendly cities. And yet most people's relationship with public services is one that's quite guarded, where there's a lack of trust and where there is tension in the relationships between people and the services they receive. So what I was interested in exploring is Have we become too technocratic in the way we run our public services? Have we moved away from those basic human instincts? Have we moved away from our emotional responses? And Carnegie were good enough to give me some time and space to think about these things, and that's why I wrote this book. And what did you conclude? I concluded that we've ended up in a world where we talk two completely different languages. There's the language of metrics, of value added, of outputs and inputs in the new public management. There's a whole way in which we talk about people as if they were outputs who we could measure and control. And then there's the language we use in the rest of our lives, which is about grief and love and sharing and fear and shame. And these two languages live in permanent tension with each other. And some people are really good at talking one language and others are really good at talking about the other language. But actually, our modern context, the really big challenges facing our society, require us to be more bilingual. We need to bring our emotions into our public services and understand that actually everything about public policy is about emotions. There's nothing cold and dry about the homes we live in, the way we feel about safety on our streets, 
the way we feel about our own ageing is not a technocratic answer, it's a deeply emotional one. So I was interested in thinking, can we be more bilingual? Is it a difficult thing to build into policy because it's, it's kind of a, a woolly idea in, in its way? Well, people always say it's woolly, but actually how you live is the reality of your lives. What's woolly for many people is the notion of very clear lines of impact and metrics and a notion that putting one sort of intervention will result in one sort of outcome, when actually we all know when we reflect on our personal lives, that's not how you raise children, that's not how you care for your relative, that's not how you plan for your old age. You plan for all of those things, thinking about how you feel. So I think it's quite hard stuff. I think it's not soft at all. I think it's about confronting the really emotional content of what public policy, what public services, what politics is about, and understanding that unless we're open about that, we're going to continue making the same mistakes. Because time and time again, studies show people don't trust their public services. They trust their GP because they know them well and can look them in the eye. But I know from personal experience, if you're dealing with a local authority about a young man with profound learning disabilities, it's not the profound learning disabilities that are the problem. It's dealing with the council that's the problem. And therefore, it really matters we find a new way of addressing it because trust in our public services is the most important commodity we've got and we're squandering it by making this seem like a cold, numerically managed transaction instead of a relationship. So how, how do you go about building it into the culture of public services? Well, I think one of the things you have to do is recognise what's stopping it. And I think there are a number of things that stop it. We have moved into an environment where we have very high levels of public scrutiny by everything that's done. So I've interviewed directors of social services who say, of course I know that would be the sensible thing to do, but can you see how that would play in the local papers? Can you see how my leader would manage to defend that in the council meeting? I think public scrutiny is a really important issue. We have to bring the public into these really complex decisions. Regulation is a really tricky issue. I know I've managed social care myself. There are so many rules about how people behave that occasionally people's instinct for kindness and for the human touch is pushed out and made much more difficult to access. Scrutiny, regulation, budget control, all of which are things that we've brought into public services for our own sake. We can make sure that we manage them in more human ways. And finally, I think we've got a commitment to fairness, which assumes that fairness means everybody gets the same, instead of fairness, which says we have to understand the human in people. Actually, when you talk to people who work in public services or public policy at the front line, there's no shortage of kindness. If you talk to care workers in residential care homes, if you talk to learning assistants in schools, they are mainly acting at the edge of their authority by going the extra mile, doing things differently, spotting the individual. It's our structures and systems that need to become more empathetic. And I think we need to tackle really hard things like public scrutiny, like accountability, like what we mean by value for money when we address these issues. Julia, give us some examples of unkindness in public policy. I think we've got a sense of what you think is being driven out, but what it, what is it being replaced by, which we want in turn want to drive out? Example, I was given a service providing volunteers who link with people who are mentally ill. Going on for a long time, very strong personal friendships being created. The local authority thought that the rules said they had to retender that in order to get the best possible price for that service. By retendering it, they broke every one of those relationships because actually the economic or financial control driver was trumping the fact that there were very real personal supportive relationships there. I mean, I'll give you another one, which is somebody said to me the other day, which is they were talking about how they had been working in a local council on, on housing policy and they said that they'd left a young woman and she said to me, you know, I had to tell a 74-year-old man he was intentionally homeless because he couldn't afford, couldn't find a private rented accommodation that he could afford. Absolutely. You know, and that struck me as a sort of example where there's some category definition of intentional homelessness, which, you know, ends up... It ends up being nonsensical. I mean, it's unkind, but it's also nonsensical. Yeah, we know the reasons for it. There's lack of funding for local authorities, and so there's lots of reasons behind it. 
but it ends up being quite brutal both for the obviously the person you know the the 74 year old man but also the person supposedly providing the service and it doesn't in the end do what it's supposed to do it doesn't save money and it doesn't change behavior intentional homelessness was designed to stop people wrecking their flat and just moving on and reporting and asking for more it doesn't drive that behavior it doesn't change that and it doesn't save money because in the end you're still responsible for a 74 year old man who's not got anywhere to live that doesn't change why have we ended up here i think we've confused the real skills of measurement and data and reporting back to the public about what we've done with our purpose which is to make communities safe and good places for people to live and I think that the push that's going to come on this will not come from people like me writing interesting reports or indeed fascinating conversations with you. It's going to come from all those people in communities who are working as mentors for young people and therefore understanding what's happening there, who are supporting asylum seekers by giving them their spare room, who are dementia friends. These are really profound expressions of solidarity. And they're a very big call to the public services to start behaving differently because the public are saying this is not an acceptable way to be they're beginning to understand through the depths of their individual relationships what's happening so it's partly a sort of target culture and a sort of audit culture well i'd say it's target audit and safety and all of those matter in all of those matter we do need to measure what we're doing we can't squander public money but we do it we don't do it with a full understanding of people's humanity. Is there a danger that this gets even more lost as algorithms are making more and more decisions? Well, what I ended up in my publication saying was I thought there was real urgency about this for that reason. Now, cleverer people than me tell me that you can program algorithms to do all sorts of things and that they are controlled by the people who input into them. I think an algorithm can be fantastically effective, but some of the information that's coming about the application in sentencing, for example, suggests that we haven't got it right yet in terms of understanding the differences between people. And that a very crude algorithm, which is the most likely thing we will use unless we engage with this and really grapple with it, will not spot the very big differences between people. It will try and put people into categories and then predict what their behaviour will be. And anyone who's worked in politics, as you have, Ed, or in public services, as I have, knows that people are not predictable in that way. It's not the same as predicting which book you want to buy on Amazon. People's lives are more messy and more complicated than that. And we need to challenge those people inputting into algorithms to understand that. And currently, I don't have much confidence that's a discussion that's happening with the big companies who are doing that. Now, Julia, we've got something on the podcast, which is called the Jeffocracy, believe it or not, which is Jeff being the supreme uh, and he claims benign ruler um, of the land. I think it's very believable. Very, it's you, entirely you, believable. You, you, you say it's believable. Uh, but uh, um, and, and in the spirit of kindness, let me say it is believable. Uh, um, if, if Jeff appointed you Secretary of State for Public Services or even Secretary of State for Kindness, what... What are the practical things you would go about? And you had sort of Jeff will be a relatively hands-off ruler, is my guess. Um, what What are the things that you would sort of start doing to turn the sort of tank around? I'd recognise that every local authority in the country is entirely dependent on the communities in which they operate. It's not the other way around. That the assets and strengths held in communities are what holds people together. And I would instruct, because I'd be Secretary of State, I would instruct local authorities to operate as servants of those communities, not masters of them. To, uh, to unleash the emotional capability and the intuitive abilities of professionals by making sure that they were connected with what's happening outside the town hall, not just inside. And I'd have a really good look at the rules for managing funding, which I think currently drive local authorities into really perverse places and not places that people who work in those um, offices want to be. Because actually nobody goes into public service wanting to give people a hard time. They end up being forced by systems to do it. So I'd want them to get out of there into the communities and understand what difference things were making. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. 
We're joined now by Dr. Agnello Fernandez, who is chair of the Clinical Commissioning Group in Croydon and a GP there, and also here uh, in Jessloft uh, by Anthony Costello, who is a professor at UCL and author of a new book uh, called The Social Edge. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Uh, Agnello, let's just start with you. Tell us about what you've been doing in Croydon and what social prescribing is all about. Uh, in many ways, social prescribing is an unfortunate term, but what it essentially is is about giving people the opportunity to manage their health and well-being better by connecting them to their local communities, by giving them the opportunity to partake in different activities with other people uh, um, in the community, uh, whether it's a, a, an exercise class, cooking, gardening, uh, or even in terms of counselling or uh, advice relating to debt or benefits. Uh, so really supporting people uh, in a way that is closer to them rather than going to a health institution. Um, and in many ways, what we've tried to do is what I think everybody strives to is is focus on trying to keep people well and healthy and happy. And if we are successful at doing that, then we're going to have less pressures on 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 the NHS. And uh, certainly, one of the driving factors for us having started it in the first place was um, we had a, a new operational manager who didn't have a background in the NHS, um, Brian Dickens. And in his first few months, he noticed that actually. Uh, we were seeing a lot of people in the surgery um, that uh, that came to us for problems that uh, we couldn't deal with. So we had one cohort of people that came to us uh, that we couldn't do anything with to support them, and there was a whole other cohort of people that we needed to see that weren't coming. So inevitably, the working with our participa- patient participation group uh, and with the local councillors uh, thought of starting a, an exercise class for the over 50s. And that's how it started, really. And uh, um, we found that it was really popular with, with, uh, with, with our patients. And, uh, uh, and that grew from one class to many more classes and many more activities. Um, and then our practices in the north of the borough, uh, in, in North Croydon, felt this is exactly why they came into medicine for, and this is about improving the lives for people, of people, and they wanted to do that. And so the whole scheme was spread to a population of 50,000. And then now it's in the process of being spread across the, the whole of the CCG. That's about 380,000 wow. uh, population. Wow. So within the last year, this revolution in trying to change behaviours, change behaviours in, in the way that uh, we from the health service are doing things in terms of commissioning, in terms of how uh, uh, and our emphasis on, on, on care for patients, focusing on keeping people well, and prevention rather than treating illness. And, and, and Agnella, tell us, how does it work? I mean, who, is it that somebody comes to you? What, what is the condition that they identify that leads them to be, um, I guess, uh, you know, signposted to these groups? What, what's the sort of process? We've kind of developed the model. So the model relating to GPs is they, they we have patients come to see us about lots of different things. And up to 20 to 30% of patients have uh, problems that are not related to their to their medical condition uh, or are related more to their social circumstances. So things like loneliness or depression or anxiety? Uh, loneliness, anxiety, depression, housing, benefits, uh, bereavement, uh, relationship problems, all sorts of things that... You know, from a medical point of view, there's very little uh, we can do in our 10-minute consultation. Uh, um, And so having an opportunity to offer them to be uh, involved with other people that may have similar sort of problems and similar sort of issues, but also do things collectively so that they they can connect to their local community. And it's all about developing those connections within the local community and the hubs, as we've called them, are local church halls, uh, local community centres uh, within walking distance of the surgery where where uh, patients can go. So we started off 
by being a, by being able to direct them or, or provide a prescription, as it were, to, to an activity. And that's where the social prescription comes in, uh, to some social activities. However, it's now grown where people... Uh, uh, people go there because they've heard about it. So it's not only patients now, it's people. Uh, when we talk about patients, we, we talk about uh, people with, with medical problems or problems. And you've reduced your visits to the GP by, by 20%, am I right in saying that? So s- certainly the evidence, the published evidence suggests that it's about 20%, and we've got research going ongoing at the moment. But we've noticed in our own practice that's that's in that region. It's probably more than that in terms of uh, some of the patients that used to see us very frequently. The numbers of patients that we saw frequently is actually reduced, and we tend to see them uh, more at the community centres now uh, doing different activities. In fact, I commented on, on one of my patients that I hadn't seen you for a while, and I noticed that you were on one of the films they were making of people being involved in the social prescribing uh, activities. So I think, and, and actually seeing some of your own patients in these circumstances where they're actually cheerful and happy and uh, are, are doing well, even though they may have multiple medical problems, uh, uh, is really a pleasure to see. Um, uh, and I think that's been the benefit of this. What's the range of activities, Agnello, that are offered? Give us a sense of the range. It's everything from bingo to fitness to what, what else? And there's nearly 70 different interventions. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the usual common ones related to exercise in some way, dance classes, cookery classes. Uh, uh, um, you talked about uh, uh, Bollywood type dancing. There's other forms of dancing. Uh, um, there is uh, activities relating to painting and the arts. Uh, um, and, you know, the range is, is endless, really. Are you funding it through the CCG? Are you funding these activities? We've used funding that the practices had in terms of GP forward view monies in terms of uh, uh, of, of kickstarting it, and uh, initially a lot of the activities were free, but people have found such benefit from it now they are uh, willing to pay a pound or two uh, to keep those classes going or for coffee or tea, and you know if you've got a hundred people turning up to an event, it pays for itself. Amazing, uh, Anthony. Let's turn to you. I can. I've seen you sort of nodding uh, as you're hearing Agnello uh, say what he's doing. Tell us about your book, The Social Edge, and 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 just the sort of general the theory of it, and then sort of how this how what Agnello has been doing fits in with with some of your practice as well as your theory. Well, oh, fantastic what Agnello's just told us. I'm coming down to see you, by the way. <laughs> Definitely. Um, no, you're, no, you're everyone should welcome. come to Croydon. Exactly, I think after this, exactly. No, I mean, I started in the same way with the same, well, 25 years ago, living in Nepal in the middle of nowhere, really, uh, two days walk from a road in a communities where 95% of women gave birth at home, where mortality rates were very high. One in seven children would die by the age of five. Lots of them would die in the first week of life. And we didn't know what to do about it, actually. We, we tried various things. And um, we did a, a, a trial. I'm, I'm an academic, so we did a randomised trial of health education for women in the slum communities of Kathmandu, uh, and we showed no impact whatsoever of giving them information, telling them what to do, basically. And then we heard about a study in Bolivia, in the mountains there, in um, where they had got women's groups together, where women came to talk about their problems and come up with their own strategies and implement them and evaluate them. And they said this is a good thing to do, but they hadn't properly evaluated them. So we set up a very big study in quite a remote population of Nepal. And we did what's called a cluster randomized trial. That is, you have certain areas where the women's groups are running and areas where they're not. And at the end of three years, I was incredibly skeptical about this. I didn't think it was. I thought it was fascinating. But we showed a 30 percent reduction in newborn deaths. Right. And we published it in The Lancet and no one believed us. Right. And we had, in the meantime, set up other studies. So we did one in the forests of Jharkhand and Orissa in India. And that was a bigger, better study. And when we looked at the results, it was a 32% reduction in. And we went, wow, this is really true. And now we've started looking. I'll just tell you about one other thing, because it's just coming out and it's so relevant to what Agnello was saying. 
Um, I've been working at WHO for the last three years, but before I went, we set up another study in Bangladesh because we work with the Diabetic Association. And Bangladesh has some of the highest diabetes rates in the world. And so we set up a study where 32 villages were just getting the usual stuff. 32 villages got mobile phone messages where we were giving them information about nutrition, diet, exercise twice a week. So quite heavy over a 18 month period. And the third was we, mo you know, they had women's groups and men's groups talking about diet and exercise and all the things that they're doing in Croydon, actually. And we've just analysed it and we hope to publish it in about a month. It's at the final review stage. So I, I won't give you the precise figures, but basically the mobile phone arm did not show a significant difference in the outcome, which was the prevalence of pre-diabetes and diabetes. About a third of people at baseline had that mm. over the age of 30, can right. you believe? And yet when we looked at the mobilisation group, it's gone down by two thirds. Wow. wow. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I think we'll have the same response because I think people and won't you've believe got, us. And, and just to, you know, because I think it's important that you've done, not just done this in practice, you've got a theory, which is around sympathy groups. Right. So just say briefly about your, yeah. the, the, because and then we'll come back to Agnello. Just So the, the anthropologists, there's a guy called Robin Dunbar in Oxford, who you might have heard of. He, uh, he believes that humans, so you have your family grouping. And he believes that groups are not random. You go up in a tripling hierarchy. So you go next to your sympathy group, about three times the size of your family group. The next he calls the overnight band, which is when we were all hunter-gatherers. Families would come together in a cave to protect against predators. And then you triple up to what's called the Dunbar number of 150. And he says, we have big brains because we have social relationships and that's the limits of your social brain and he says even with facebook and twitter and all the rest of it you can still only handle about 15 the sympathy group size for your really intense relationships and about 150 for the people that you can interact with on a regular basis and no so that's why Theresa may's got problems her, cab her, cab her cabinet is too large and her then she's got too many MPs. Well, basically that, what you're saying, about double the size of the cabinet exactly. than it should be and double the well, size of the story. it is interesting, MPs. politics, because if you look, you know, then I started looking, I, I've written the book about sympathy groups and the power that they could have, because if you think about it, hunters, gatherers, that's what we were for 200,000 years. And we hunt in groups, we gather in groups. Greek philosophy was done in groups, medieval craft groups. Theatre is a classic sympathy group. So you have beneficiaries, so the actors, an enabler who's the director. You have regular meetings, rehearsals. You uh, come up with, uh, you build trust in the company and then you have your strategies and you produce play. Music, film, the military they're, it's all geared towards your section of a platoon, which is about 15 people or, you know, mm. 10 to 20. And and politics. So this, I'd like to ask you a question. So classically, Putin had an inner circle of about 15 people when you right. went into it. Trump, the same. Half of them are his family because those are the only ones he trusts. Most politicians will do that, have their inner circle. I mean, when you were leading, did you have an inner circle Probably about that's right. that number Probably of people, the ones right. that you really trust? Probably that's right. How much of the gains that you're seeing are less to do with the activities, but more to do with the relationships that are forming between the people doing the activities? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, yes. So uh, Anthony calls it sympathy groups. And we've got a, a concept called group consultations. And it's about 14 or 15 people really? uh, who, who, who come together with a, a, a clinician or, uh, or a facilitator. Um, and the published evidence is related to diabetes, patients with diabetes. Oh. And the outcomes in terms in the measurable outcomes in terms of diabetic control is significantly better in those groups than in, in other people uh, managed in a different way. And again, the, the power of people working in, in groups and the dynamics between them is, 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 you know, well proven. So Anthony's described the anthropological model and the scientific basis for it. We're in the implementation and practical end of it. And we've got these group consultations now set up uh, in, in a few surgeries now for diabetes, for 
active lifestyles for uh, respiratory disease and we're even starting with uh, with skin conditions this is about people helping each other is it absolutely people sharing their uh, their problems and listening to somebody with the same problem as you and how they've managed it and how they've uh, how they cope with it and how they uh, improve on it is just really very powerful and i mean we found groups of people who've then set up their own whatsapp group yeah um to be supporting each other uh, and i think those relationships uh, with people that you've got something in common with are really quite powerful in terms of uh, uh, in terms of changing lifestyles and changing behaviors and also in terms of well-being because yeah. you know, you don't feel you're alone uh, you've got other people that you can you know have got similar problems that uh, uh, that you can go to for for help and taking that further to these different activities the relationships that people build uh, with other people involved in that is enormously beneficial in the same vein obviously you start with people with a specific medical problem so it may be diabetes or a skin condition or whatever ours was a little bit further back from that it was going into the general population and so my we're very interested right now in trying to replicate this trial actually in britain in in because there's such high risk populations here the question then is um clearly if you are diabetic and you go to your doctor and your doctor says come to a group and we'll facilitate it most people will come but if you're let's say 45 and a bit paunchy and I don't know why you're looking at me when you say like that, Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, you said to me, Jeff, before we started, that that a lot of people wouldn't go to a group. And I think that is an initial feeling that some people, but I think people also value their health. So I'd be interested in Agnella, you know, asking you, do you think if you took high risk, but apparently healthy people, um, and invited them to come to groups. Is it your experience that they would come round to that? So the active lifestyles one yeah. is uh, people who may or may not have any joint problems. Right. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, have something in common in terms of how they can improve their mobility. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, that in itself is uh, a whole range of different people come to that. This is incredibly inspiring, I mean, what both of you are saying is incredibly inspiring. I think the sort of absolutely billion-dollar question here is, you know, how do we get this to happen in our public services? I mean, I think... Because it doesn't feel very top-down in a certain way, does it? Well, that's the question. I mean, I mean, maybe start with you, Agnello. Look, you know, you've done... You're clearly doing something quite amazing and inspiring. How do we... We've got this thing called the Jeffocracy, which is the idea of Jeff as a sort of uh, benign dictator. But I mean, if he in a utopia, if he made you the sort of you know Secretary of State for Health, what? what and, and frankly, I think from what I've heard, you'd be a very good Secretary of State for Health. What would you do to sort of make this happen? Because it, it's clearly got extraordinary potential. This uh, absolutely, and I think it's, a bottom-up approach is absolutely critical to empower people to do this. Um, uh, and, and removing barriers and, and facilitating them actually uh, at doing this is critical. But the biggest mindset change is that shift from thinking about having a service that is focusing on wellness as opposed to sickness. And we talk about the NHS, but actually it should be the National Sickness Service because we deal with sickness. But how do we change that emphasis in terms of keeping people well? And once that big mindset shift which is a step change really happens, then everything else follows. Uh, But, you know, communities are already doing a lot of the things that we've talked about. It's about how do we connect them within the the system and how how do we empower them and and also highlight the important work that they're doing in in supporting their local communities and, um, uh, you know, making people and communities more resilient so that communities can look after themselves. Anthony, just from your point of view, you've thought about this a lot in the developing world. How can we have a state in the UK that does more of this? Oh, I think we could could do it. And and, and it's a little bit top down and an awful lot of bottom up. I mean, just going back to, for example, in India, where we did our study, uh, one of the secretaries of health for Arisa State, 50 million people saw the research she was very bright she said 
I can scale this up within our budget. And she set up 140,000 women's groups by engaging with local people and helping, creating the kind of ecology for it to happen. And it's now happening in another state. And the federal government has said we want this scaled up in eight states. So if they can do it, we can do something similar here. And and I think it requires thinking about issues. You know, if you run an immunisation programme, you think about how to store the vaccines, which numbers of people you need, how you're going to do it, how you incentivise coverage, how you, you know, all of those things. And we have to do something similar here. You need to tap into the power of existing systems, which is exactly what Agnello's done. You know, you find groups, you build on them, you stimulate them, you catalyze them. You find the time and the place. Now, for the time is tricky in our kind of society because in rural populations, they meet in the daytime or, but even there, you know, you've got men away at certain time, women away at certain time. So you've got to tailor it to either women or working women or people in the evenings or whatever so you need power time place and organization and you need some money to seed that because you may need to incentivize certain facilitators part of our success and a major part of it is that the people leading and project managing this have had no nhs background exactly um, exactly. <laughs> so they work at a different pace, yeah. they work in a different way, uh, they connect with the community in a different way. Well, look, Dr. Agnello Fernandez, we should all come to Croydon. The revolution is happening in Croydon. Uh, thank you so much. And Anthony Costello, thank you too. Thank you. Thank you very much. What do you think? I think it's really exciting. It is I mean, exciting. We have a lot of good ideas on this podcast, yeah. but every now and again there's one that sounds like a silver bullet. I agree. This is one of those ideas. And in a way you sort of sit here thinking, why aren't we doing this everywhere because people have been talking about this for a long time about public services hillary cottam who we interviewed from the lunar festival uh, has been talking about these issues and doing some of it for years and years now and i think some of it is happening but i don't think it's really integrated into the way we think about public services or the way they work but it's it? so clever that way of selling it as a as prescribed by a doctor well, you think it makes it more likely that people will do it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll do what a doctor tells me. You if you will. told me to go and join a group, I'd be sceptical. But if a doctor told me, I'd be I've there. noticed that. I've noticed that. Um, no, and I, I think it goes to something else, which is about a bit about the left in politics, which is that the left is very good, and I, I include myself in this at critiquing the way the market works. But it's less good at thinking about how the state should work in a different way. And I think this is absolutely in the in the sort of wheelhouse of those issues. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
As ever, we would love to hear from you if you want to let us know what you think about this week's episode, about how kindness could be incorporated into public policy, any ideas for future episodes or things you've thought uh, about ones you've heard in the past, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on twitter at cheerful podcast uh we're on facebook facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast and instagram as well i think also cheerful podcast i've got one go on all i want for christmas is the end of the leisure center story <laughs> i've told you it's, it's not, not a lot happen. to ask. I've even written a letter to Santa asking for All it. All I want for Christmas. Santa does exist, doesn't All he? I want for Christmas is to see that video of you trampolining. You've seen the video. I mean, in a public forum. Oh, right. <laughs> right, this comes from uh, Oliver Osborne, who writes about the... Um, Ollie Osborne. Ollie Osborne, about the episode that we did last week on paternity leave. Uh, he says, Dear Pod... I am a self-employed father of two small children in Berlin. Germany is not a country particularly given to self-employment, but they do have a very sensible arrangement where the parents can share 14 months of paid parental leave. The mother must take the first three months, but after that you're free to make your own arrangements. You receive two-thirds your normal monthly income, capped at around €1,800 per month. It works very well. And whilst you on the podcast often hold Sweden up as a utopia, the UK would never move to their levels of taxation. In Germany, I pay a little more in tax than I did in the UK, but only a little more, and I see very directly the benefit in their excellent early years provision. He also says, uh, on a broader point, Germany is, for the for the most, quite a conservative country, one that the right in Britain rightly admires for its productivity and innovation. Um, but they could also note that radical Labour policies such as worker representation on boards are considered normal wow ish be nine billioner right this one comes from Haley gullen i hope i pronounced her name right paternity leave a mother's perspective dear ed and jeff thanks for your episode on paternity leave having given birth to my daughter in july i was particularly interested to hear the discussion my husband who works in the software industry had six weeks paid paternity leave when our daughter was born I agree with all of the points made in the podcast, but would also add this was hugely beneficial for me. I had an emergency C-section, which was a six-week six weeks recovery period. Having my husband around for a full six weeks meant that I had healthy meals every day, including breakfast in bed, a clean home, and practical and emotional support. I didn't have to worry about anything except looking after our daughter and my own recovery. Without him being there for the full six weeks, I would have found things a lot more difficult. I can see how this could have a huge impact on new mother's mental health, which is a big public health concern. His support helped me stay physically and mentally healthy. We're also planning to do shared parental leave. I'm going back to work in January after seven months off, and he'll be taking the remaining five months. We're lucky enough to be able to afford this. I imagine most couples can't afford to lose so much income. And then she directs us to a blog that she's written about this precise subject, uh, how can charities help new mothers increase paternity leave? This comes from Saskia, and she writes on an episode, I think it was two or three episodes ago, on the death penalty. She writes, You touched on how easy it is for people on death row to give up. If they had a support network, many people lose them when they're sentenced as family and friends can't afford uh, or can't face visiting. Human rights... That's W-R-I-T-E-S, is a great organisation where you become pen pals with someone on death row. I've made a friend whose letters I look forward to, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Well, not about the death penalty. Befriending is also something you can do in the UK, visiting people who are in immigration detention centres or prisons. We don't have a death penalty, uh, but the UK has the most regressive immigration detention system in Europe. People who've been locked up in the UK are at the risk of abuse, generally don't have people who visit, and often can't access support with mental health problems. They especially struggle when they don't know if they'll be detained for a week or a year. Uh, you can find a nearby visitors group by Googling avid detention and uh, if you don't want a long-term commitment there's also the option to write christmas cards as part of an amnesty international campaign uh, for people in prison and on death row around the world send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and here to pitch some ideas for things which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we are joined by comedian Adam Riches. Hello. Hello. Thank Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, Thank th- you for coming. For, thanks for coming. And um, a lot of the stuff you've done in the past has been in character. Yes. Do, do you like being yourself? Not really, no. <laughs> this is uh, this is very uncomfortable for me. What does it mean in character? I play. I do character comedy oh, in the I main, see. so I'm, I never really appear on stage or anywhere 
other as than yourself. as myself. Yeah, so I don't have much confidence, material or personality. <laughs> so good luck for the next wow. five minutes. Um, Ed does a very good, speaking of characters, Ed does a very good, were you a fan of Bullseye? Uh, Jim Bowen Bullseye. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the cartoon Bull? Oh, Bully. Oh, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> That's Ed's, Ed's oh. great character. Um, I mean, you do Gordon Brown, but... I'm not like a performing seal, you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, Adam, you've you brought a, a load of ideas with mm. you today. Let's uh, let's hear your first one. I would like to see sharks put into every single film from this point on, um, whether they're needed or whether they're not needed. You can't beat a good shark. You cannot beat a good shark. And if you if you look at it from the point of view of think of every shark film that's been out there, take the shark out. It is nowhere near as good a film. <laughs> that is definitely true. So if you start adding them into films and and retro fitting them into films as well, putting them into films that have already come before. Like sort of Casablanca or something. Put a shark in it. <laughs> could, have been even, could have been even better with a shark. Yeah, and he can play it on the, on the piano. Yeah, and, and exactly. could just kick into that. I, I, I think they're, they're a wonderful bad guy. You see all the lists of the bad guys in films, Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter, but Jaws is definitely the best bad guy, I think, in a film, because he's just relentless. Well, I was in Italy this summer with my kids, and we got a lot, very large inflatable shark, and I sort of pretended to sort of kill it in a picture <laughs> <laughs> causing much amusement i was so pretty to have a fight with it and then sort of triumph can the listeners see that picture as a christmas present <laughs> no <laughs> what size shark was it big it was a big yeah like full size you bigger said than that me. like you'd actually defeated <laughs> a shark then bigger than me definitely did you need a bigger boat <laughs> uh, yeah i'll tell you honestly it was it was it was pretty rough out there <laughs> So you're into this idea of sharks being incorporated into everything? Uh, yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, what else you got, Adam? Um, facial hair. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You've got some. I've Jeff's got, got some. more. It's, I've hated it. I was not taught how to shave by my father when I was younger or, or even shown. And so as with most teenagers, I suppose, I, I shaved the wrong way extensively for so many years that I, I'm unable really to get a clean shave now. Even you know as close as I can go, it's still there's still a shadow, or within an hour or two, there's 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 a shadow. So I would like some kind of technology to be developed whereby you can just get rid of shaving, where you can just pick the length that you want for anything: your beard, your moustache, your sideburns, whatever, your eyebrows, your nasal hair, anything. Get a length that you can set, and then it's it's just that forever. I think that'd be brilliant. So you'd be genetically reprogrammed. So it's like when people try and figure out what chemical or hormone is making people go bald. It's sort of that yes. in reverse. I really like yeah. that idea, don't yeah. you? They're It'd going be good the wrong for you. Way. It would. I because I I never really was taught how to shave either, and I do have a beard, but I don't know how to trim it, so I always go to the barbers. I mean, I briefly had a beard after 2015. You know, when after, after the, the, I lost that election thing in my jigs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I really liked it. Beard maintenance is just such a business. I had a beard a long time before they were fashionable. I, I grew a beard for the classic reason, which was to try and disguise double chins. Right. And then, then beards became fashionable. So, which many, means so many men have yeah, beards now. Which means at some stage they're going to stop being fashionable, and then I'm going to look like a man who is slightly out of fashion rather than a man who was never involved in fashion in the first place. Yeah. It's a worry. So you feel pretty... Sort of resentful, resentful towards the trendy beards. Although I, I like this solution, I, I think it would pers- maybe persuade me to have a beard if it, if I didn't have to do anything to it. If it's just left, you can just that's it done. And, yeah, and, and you know they can do wonderful things with genetics now. Yes, I don't know why definitely. we haven't gone that way first. I buy it. Yeah, it yeah. makes more sense than anything else they're trying. This I'd, is what they should be focusing their I'd be, on. I'd never mind Brexit. I yes. buy it. Um, what else? Hey, Adam? I'm doing well. Two for two. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Leading directly on. Yes, Gerard Butler. Are you familiar with, with the I phrase, I literally Gerard have Butler? no idea No, who that I, don't, is. I don't know Gerard Butler. Well, this feeds right into it. I think more work and more funding should be put into getting everybody more aware of who Gerard Butler is. Well, you can start with us. Yeah, so who, who is he? <laughs> so he is a Scottish film star who rose to prominence in 300, which was the, the film of the, the Spartans, 300 Spartans at the nope. Hot Gates. Nope. Did you not see that? Nope. Uh, he was also played Phantom of the Opera. Right, I've heard of Phantom of the Opera. Um, and he does one of the voices in How to Train Your Dragon, and he does a lot of romantic comedies. Um, he was in Coriolanus, so he's, mm. he's got chops. 
And maybe I'm ridiculing him slightly here, but I, I don't mean it now. He way. has been ridiculed. But he has been ridiculed. Well, it's yeah, quite nice he's... to know. Since, as somebody who's been ridiculed, I think it'd be quite nice to know. Uh, <laughs> it's quite nice to promote. Well, Why has he been ridiculed? He's doubted because of his ability. He's oh. doubted because of his range. He's doubted because of his cheesiness or his mm. thing. But it, this is a this is a guy that is operating at a very, very high level of of acting i've just I've just had him a look at him on wikipedia yeah. he's, he's done dozens of films done, none of which i've seen yes six of which are good <laughs> <laughs> he's got a vast range of, he, he's a guy that's been everywhere he is pretty ubiquitous but you don't know who he no. is and i think Honestly, that i feel like an ignoramus we need to get onto i mean already this idea is happening just by virtue yeah. of you talking about yeah. him in this way on the podcast I, I think he's terrific do you have any tattoos of his face anywhere about your body i do and they're not connected <laughs> me bringing this up all the time <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, yeah. uh, well, uh, you have one one last idea. Is, is this all right to mention this one? Well, then mention ahead. it and we'll see. So it's a safe space-ish. I think, I think enough enough with the podcasts. You mean us specifically? Enough with the podcast or enough with the podcast? <laughs> Let's call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> I think in general, we've, we must have hit peak podcast now. And I think I agree there was a time when when people's voices weren't being heard and people wanted their opinions and it's a new technology and it's a great way of just like throwing out some opinions out there and and getting out there and reaching people. But we've been reached. I think people have been <laughs> people have been reached. There's. We're not taking this personally. You should not because, too much. No, I mean, your arms I'm are folded. Other, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about other podcasts, of course. So it's like um, peak oil. There, yes, there and, is a and, podcast for everything. And what you're saying, new ones are like the sort of fracking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're and you're, you're the like part of the anti-fracking. I, I am. My earlobes need yeah. less fracking going on. I have been saying this to Jeff for some months. Right. He said slightly resentfully. The, the danger is we reach peak podcasts. Then we but should Jeff, release. We should release another one before the whole yeah, we house are, of we cards do, we do, collapses. We, we can give people a sneak preview that we do have a we do have an idea, don't we? we do. For another one, for yes. The, well, we, we, a spin-off. something we're going to call the Cheerful Book Club because we sort of think there's lots of really good non-fiction books that kind of don't get proper attention. You don't think we've reached peak books then? No, we haven't reached people. This, 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 we're not this, suggesting that we start burning books. Basically, if we're Dallas, this is not landing. <laughs> <laughs> is that the right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, the right exactly analogy. There's that, too yeah. many falcon crests out there. Well, <laughs> that might be that might be true. That might be true. But there are fewer podcasts than there were because Nick Clegg used to have one. That seems to have vanished without a trace. Yeah, and you did assure me. You see, Jeff, this is where Jeff is kind of you know he is the sort of John Curtis of, of podcast <laughs> forecasting because he did say to me as Nick Clegg was beating us in the charts and sort of wanging on about the fact that he was beating us in the charts or not wanging on but saying that we he, he just oh, he's, he's you know he's like he's gonna be here today gone tomorrow and indeed he is he was gone tomorrow yeah gone to facebook yes he's gone yeah, yeah. Uh, do you feel that aggressively about other podcasts could there be a gangs there's, of new york style nick, nick clegg was in a particular category i think i think generally we're quite generous aren't we we're sort of a thousand flowers bloom aren't we jeff uh, yes, don't yeah. you think but your girlfriend does a podcast she does do a podcast yeah the yeah. nobody panic podcast and yeah. uh, and it's very very successful and people love it so i don't, I don't know why I've and what, what's it about it's about uh, how to be an adult and it's about how to kind of deal with different situations jeff in, needs that in, so in, yeah i really yeah, do yeah, yeah, really just yeah. uh, download a couple <laughs> Help yourself. And and have you? I mean, we've plugged your girlfriend's podcast. Do you yes. do you have anything that you uh, I, to I, at the moment? Can people come and see you? Have you got anything? Yes, I do. Yeah, I've got a show happening next year. Two shows happening next year. Um, one called The Guy Who, which is a show I did in Edinburgh, which is a, a single character about a very modern pickup artist, and it's site specific. It happens in a cafe, and I'm in the cafe, and then I start hitting on whoever I find and it's a satire on that type of um that type of man a certain type of man that exists out there that I mean this sounds like the audience don't know it's happening you just sound like a man in a cafe hitting on people they pay their money yeah exactly I've been doing it for years (laughs) (laughs) this is one with a poster um and then I'm doing another show called The Lone Jeweler which is a show in Edinburgh uh, as well that's uh, me as a kind of a swashbuckling hero um versus a lot of mannequins uh, shop bought mannequins because I can decapitate their heads very very easily <laughs> and then I'm going on tour in, in the spring as well uh, in April with a one man show so I've got lots of stuff happening in and around um, that you can see or not see great Adam thanks so much thanks for thank having you me. for coming this is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd outro time 
Outro time, eight days till Christmas and counting. Yeah, and also exciting news. Uh, the, the next episode will be uh, what is becoming a reason to be cheerful tradition. It's the annual Christmas game of class struggle. This is the socialist version of Monopoly invented by a Marxist scholar, which Ed used to play as a boy, and it's, it's been loaned to us by some friends of the podcast. Yeah, it's shortly going to be on display at the British Museum. This is true. Yeah. yeah. I, and also, it's my birthday on the day the episode comes out, so I think of it more as my birthday edition, which was what <laughs> I thought you were going to say. Okay. it's. The, I mean, there's this other little thing called Christmas. but Yeah, you know. so, so we, we'll be playing Class Struggle and celebrating Ed entering his 50th year. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> oh, you're such an arse. No, but 50. All right, all right, right. Let's move you're on. You're not going to be 50 Let, even. You're going to be 49. Let's do our, let's, you're still in your 40s. Let's do our thank yous, shall we? You're still a borderline 40-something. Let's do our thank okay. yous, shall we? <laughs> yes. I'd like to start by not thanking you. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'd like to thank Julia Unwin, Dr. Agnello Fernandez, and Anthony Costello. And thanks to Adam Riches for coming in and pitching some ideas. Emma Caution produced our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the ident. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was... Done by... Emily Power! I got to say it this week. I, I always think of that as like your favourite part of the week, getting to say Emily's well, I just want to be generous. Mixing you know, it up a little, little bit. Christmas generosity, unlike... Um, <laughs> <some people. laughs> Now, um, I, sh- I should mention that uh, we were talking about how nobody seems to notice our yes. little sign-offs at the end of the podcast. Yes, but somebody has. Yes, John Cooper yes. tweeted me to say that he enjoys our little sign-offs. Now, I yes. don't know if this you- is you setting up a Twitter account and pretending to be no, John Cooper. No, he's a real person. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so let's do one then. He's been the man with the hit tweet. He's been an absolute ass. <laughs> 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 and these have been reasons to be cheerful. Yeah.